you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack there in front of you. And as soon as you found Deuteronomy chapter 19, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we can hear read together the word of the one and only true and living God. Deuteronomy chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, this is the word of the Lord. But if a man hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, assaults him and kills him, and then flees to one of these cities, the elders of his town shall send for him, bring him back from the city, and hand him over to the avenger of blood to die. Show him no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood so that it may go well with you. Let's pray together. Lord, we continue to acknowledge as we're here in your presence that worship is a dialogue between us and you. You speak, we respond. Lord, these are your words, your truth that we hold in our hand that we've read together. And so I pray that you would speak to us through your truth. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are present, that for thousands of years you have superintended your word and protected it and its transmission to us so that we continue to hold it in our hands today. So I pray that you would help us understand your truth. And the Lord, what's your truth? That we would take it to heart and apply it to our lives and just seek your transformation in our hearts through your word and through your truth. So we submit ourselves to you now and to the authority of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you've missed the last couple of weeks, we have, this is our third week that we've been in Deuteronomy chapter 19. And we have been contemplating these cities of refuge that God commanded his people to build when they take possession of the promised land. And for the most part, it's been awfully good news for us as we've seen the character of God revealed in these cities. We've seen how much God loves human life that he created in his image. God says he has crowned us humans with glory and with honor. And so God seeks to protect that life. And we've seen that demonstrated in these cities of refuge. We've seen as well last week that it's not just our physical beings that need protection. Our souls need refuge as well. Because if you're like me, you know that life often and easily and sometimes or often quite unexpectedly can beat us up. And in those times, we need a place of refuge, and the Lord is our refuge. So the good news is that refuge for us is relational. And that's why Jesus says to us, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's in a relationship with Christ. That relationship is also in the form of community. We notice that these places of refuge are what? They are cities where people live. They are not caves where people go off in isolation. And so you and I find refuge when we are closely related to Christ in the shelter of his wings and his shadow and his fortress and his tower. doesn't matter. You choose the image. And when we are closely related to one another, when you and I as individuals and as a church, when we become a place of refuge and healing for people whose souls are hurting. Well, this morning, we can't leave the cities of refuge because there is more to see in them. Uh, On the surface, 
as you heard from the reading, it may not sound as positive and delightful as the previous two weeks. And yet here it is in God's word. And if we're going to teach the the full counsel of scripture, we have to address these verses that we've read this morning. And we're a little put off, a little uneasy maybe when we hear that these cities of refuge are not for everyone. Everyone is not welcome into them. Some are excluded. Some are expelled from these cities or extradited from them. So why? Why does the God of grace, the God who tells us to turn the other cheek, why does he tell his people here in these verses to turn some people away, to withhold refuge? Or even worse, look in verse 13. Show him no pity. What's going on here? What does this requirement to exclude some people from the city of refuge reveal about the character of God? And how is this part of God's law for his people, if they are going to live well in the land that he's giving them, how is this consistent with love and grace? Well, let's think through this story, this scenario that Moses gives us here to see if we can answer some of those questions. Look in verse 11. But if a man hates his neighbor, now stop there. Immediately we know that whatever is going to happen in the rest of this story, it's not going to end well. It cannot possibly end well because the outcome can never be good when human behavior, your behavior and my behavior, when it is in direct contradiction to the word of God, Now, there's a life principle for you. I'm telling you, it's not going to end well when you and I in our lives uh, live in ways that are in direct contradiction to the word of God. So the man in the story, he knows God's command. Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Leviticus 19, 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now we know that Jesus very beautifully and famously took these two verses and put them together. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then Jesus said the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So here's God's standard. Old Testament, New Testament, both places. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself, period. So when this man hates in his heart, we know immediately that he is disobeying the commandments of the Lord. Why is he doing that? Well, obviously these two men in this story, they have a history together. And somewhere in their history together, this man has developed an intense hate for his neighbor. Now the story doesn't tell us why he hates. Perhaps his hate is justified. Maybe his neighbor moved his boundary stone, like we read there in verse 14. Maybe he stole some of his land. Maybe the neighbor did something offensive or humiliating to this man's family and he hates him for it. Perhaps the neighbor had done nothing at all. Maybe he never did anything. Maybe the killer just didn't like his neighbor. He coveted him. He, he, he envied his life. His neighbor was everything he was not and was never going to be. He was always in his shadow. He, even since school days, he'd been in his shadow, and so he hates his neighbor. You know, we could guess all day long 
But here's the thing. The reason for the hate is not the issue. Because it isn't as if, you know, if you and I came up with a really good reason, God would say, you know what? I've never heard that one before. Gee, that's really bad. Okay, you go ahead and hate. Really, we think we're unique. Well, Lord, here's my sister. No, it doesn't matter. That's not the point. Plenty of reasons exist to hate. But what does God say? Don't hate, don't seek revenge. So the question is always before us. Will we obey God or will we do things our way? See, hate doesn't usually appear in an instant. Hate is something you have to nurse along, isn't it? You have to feed it. You have to keep feeding it or the hate will die. Well, this man did not want to obey God because he didn't want his hate to die. So he had to keep thinking about his hate in order to keep the hate alive. So while everyone else is in their bed sleeping, you know, this man is lying wide awake, saucer-eyed, fists clenched, thinking of all the reasons he has to hate his neighbor. Obedience to God at this point in his life, while he was lying on his bed, could have saved another man's life. If this man had taken his thoughts captive in that moment, if he had taken the truth of the word of God and and beaten those thoughts and feelings of hate down with the reality of the love of God and the truth of his word, his hate would have disappeared. Even if those reasons were for hate were legitimate reasons. He could have asked God to help him view them and understand them in the light of the love and the mercy and the grace of God. So God doesn't ask this man to do anything more than God himself has done. We can pick the story It doesn't matter. I've chosen this one. The people collect all their gold. They melt it down. They put it in the form of a golden calf and they worship around it. They bow down before the golden calf. Oh, golden calf. You are our God, golden calf. You have delivered us from the slavery of Egypt. Not much of a way to say thank you or we love you to the God who truly loved them enough to demonstrate his power on their behalf and deliver them from the slavery of Egypt. God could have hated them for that. God could have destroyed them for that. But God chose not to hate. God chose not to break his covenant with his people. God chose to love anyway. So when we think of all the ways that God loves us anyway, And we all know the sin we do. We all know the things we do that we're not supposed to do. Things God could hate us for, he forgives us in Christ. We know all the things that we leave undone. We ignore all uh, the injustice here in Charleston. We just don't, you know, somebody else can worry about it. We don't do those things. God could hate us for it. But he forgives us for those things in Christ. No matter what the offense Even if it had been legitimate, the reality is that this man could have prevented murder if he had obeyed God, controlled his thoughts, and not let sin fester in his heart. But he did not. So what happens next? Keep reading in the story, verse 11. But if a man hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, lies in wait for him. So instead of using those left to his own thought moments, to contemplate the love of God, the goodness of God. Instead of using those moments to put a plan together, how he might 
you know, or, uh, organize a conversation with this man where they could kind of talk out their issues and find reconciliation? No. This man uses those moments to formulate and premeditate a plan for murder. That was his choice. It was his decision all along the way, so he reaped what he sowed. He sowed thoughts of hate, and he reaped a plan for murder. He planned carefully. He knew his neighbor's habits. He knew his neighbor's patterns. He knew when his neighbor would pass along the road. He could have been just as controlled and careful and thoughtful in his obedience to God. Even in those moments when he was lying in the ditch or in the woods or wherever he was lying, even in those moments, he could have changed his mind. He could have called out for, to God for help, but that was not his choice. So what do we read here? When the neighbor came by, the man sprang from his hiding place, assaulted his neighbor and killed him. What started with a thought, started with a thought that would not become obedient to God ended in murder. Now, let's talk about us. You ready? You ready? Oh, no, you're not. <laughs> Turn in your, your Bible, in the New Testament, to the book of James. And if you have a pew Bible that you're using, it's on page 854. Turn to the book of James. It's kind of near the end of the New Testament, the first chapter. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now listen, these verses are the spiritual mechanics behind everything that happened with this man and his neighbor in Deuteronomy chapter 19. And they are, the sin, they are the mechanics behind the sinful actions uh, that, that make their way into your life and mine as well. Sinful actions begin with sinful thoughts. Okay? Listen to what James says. We're drawn away, we're lured, we're enticed by what we think or by what we desire the most. That's what tempts us. And whatever, whatever that it is that, that's so appealing, that's the thing that you and I are moving toward. It's just like the worm on the hook. And this is the language that James uses here for, for lure. You know, that, that worm on the hook looks so appealing to the fish. The, the, the bait and the trap looks so appealing to the animal, the smell of it, the sight of it. And, you know, maybe that little fish was just out for a pleasant Saturday morning swim. When he saw the worm on the hook, well... He didn't turn away from the worm on the hook. Instead, he swam toward it. You know the rest of that story. Maybe the animal was in the forest. Ah, Saturday morning walk through the woods. Ah, what is this? Bait. Mm, Yum. Looks good. Smells good. I'm hungry. Didn't turn away from it. We know the rest of that story. For the man in Deuteronomy, what he lusted after was revenge. How sweet it would taste to have revenge on his neighbor. See, all of us have a point of decision. All of us. Something is going to lure us away 
from our rest and our refuge in Christ. Something's going to call to us in our lives. Come out. Come out of the tower. Come out of the fortress. Come out of the city. Step out of the shadow of Christ. Come on. Come on out. And so it has to be. It's the nature of the world in which we live that sets itself up against Christ. So whenever we know that what is luring us materially, emotionally, sexually, relationally, when we know that what is luring us is inconsistent with the word of God, it is at that point that we must look away from the bait that is so appealing to us, that bait that has grabbed hold of our gut and our heart. We want it so badly. And we fight back. And we don't let those thoughts to trespass any further. No, no trespassing. You can come this far no more. Now, turn with me to a different book in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It's the other direction, back toward the Old Testament. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 821. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look in verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Here's our battle lined out for us. We have to fight the physical with the spiritual the truth of God's word, and we have to know that it is powerful. We've got to pick up the truth of God's word as a weapon in our hands and demolish the things that allure and entice us. And listen, we are deceived if we think it's easy. You know, American Christians think there's just nothing to the Christian life. Oh, it's so fun, so happy. It, it is not easy. Not if you and I are going to take it seriously. We are in a battle. And you and I, we are tactile people. We are visual, seeing as believing people. And we've got to fight this physically appealing things with what is unseen, with what is not tangible, with what is spiritual. And that's why when you and I are truly engaged in this battle, when we truly want to not hate, when we want to hate... When we're really engaged, we're going to be people of prayer. Lord, help, help. We're going to be people who are like the man last week, who ran in desperation, ran for his life into that city of refuge. In those left-to-our-own-thoughts moments, we've got to be turning our thoughts loose and telling our thoughts, run, go, flee, fly to Jesus. That's what we've got to do. You think that sounds simplistic, (laughs) what a preacher would say. Yeah, but if you're thinking about the Lord, if you're reading his truth in his word, then you're not thinking about and plotting sin, are you? You can't do both at the same time. We're not that good at multitasking. See, God has graciously in this passage given us this physical picture of a spiritual reality. He's done his part. He's shown us that sin starts with a thought. 
And when that thought is not taken captive, it will lead to sinful action that will lead to death. That's the way it is. So let's come back to our passage in Deuteronomy chapter 19. The man nurses his hateful thoughts. He devises his murder plan. He executes the plan. And then what? Well, verse 11 says he flees to the city of refuge. Now, again, Moses is a little sketchy on the details here. He doesn't fill it out for us very much. But what happens in this man's heart between the murder and the flight? What was he thinking? I mean, oh, there is a dead body at my feet, and I killed this man. Now, maybe it was always part of his plan that after he killed the man, he would run to the city of refuge. No, I'll live the rest of my life here in safety. Or perhaps the man hadn't even gotten that far in his plan and he just instinctually ran to the city of refuge. Again, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether he instinctually or premeditatively ran to that city. The point is this. He did not want to face the consequences of his sin. He wanted revenge. Oh, I'm going to kill him. But he didn't want to pay the price of satisfying that desire. You mean, if I kill somebody... Their family member, the avenger of blood, gets to to kill me. I didn't know that. This man didn't want to pay the consequences. And you you and I are culturally conditioned to be the same way. We don't want to pay the consequences. Now, when I was growing up, it was almost a universal reality. And people who are my age or older, you know this is, is true. Is there anybody older than I am here? Just kidding. If you got in trouble at school, you got in trouble at home. You know what I'm talking about? If you got in trouble at school, you got in trouble at home with your parents. But by the time I was teaching school, the way it works is if a a student got in trouble with the teacher, the teacher got in trouble with the parents. Now, you know that's true. You know, and so as a result, little Johnny or little Susie, they don't ever learn that there are consequences to their sin because... Mommy and daddy are a refuge for them, a city of refuge, when mommy and daddy should turn them out to face the consequences. We live in a culture that wants to be consequence-free. When they took out all the seesaws and merry-go-rounds and the high slides and the swings from all the city parks in New York in the 1990s, the, the parks commissioner was quoted as saying this, in today's litigious world, The children come to the playground with parents, and the parents come with lawyers, (laughs) which is the truth. In 2012, 83-year-old Evelyn Paswall walked into the clear glass doors at an Apple store. You've been to our Apple store? You know what the doors are like? Easy enough to do. She broke her nose. She's suing Apple for a million dollars. 75000 for medical bills, the rest for their negligence that she didn't see the door. <laughs> anyway, how, how litigious we are really as a society, society isn't the point. The point is that we believe that we are a litigious society, and so that makes us afraid of being sued because it's happened enough for us to know that you can do something and blame someone else for it and get away with it. But since God is a God of justice, there must be consequence for sin. Okay? Since God is a God of justice, there must be consequences for sin. And that's what God demonstrates here. 
when God's people take possession of the promised land and when they build these cities of refuge and, and when they turn away a murderer from its gates or they expel them for extradition, all the people of Israel and all the nations of the world that are watching will know this one thing, that God is a God of justice. God is a God of justice. When Moses went up on the mountain, Mount Sinai the second time to receive the Ten Commandments from the Lord, he got up early in the morning and he met the Lord on the mountain and the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him. And Moses called on the name of the Lord and then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and he proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God is not soft on sin. He's not a patsy. He's a strong God and he's a just God and he will not leave the guilty unpunished. What would happen if he did, what would happen if this murderer had been given refuge? You know, Frank and Sam were brothers. And Frank worked for months on this model airplane. It was detailed. It was beautiful. It was Frank's prized possession. Well, one day Sam came in to Frank's room and he picked up Frank's airplane. And he threw it on the ground and he smashed it into pieces. Of course, Frank goes to Sam. You know, he's going to hit him. And the father hears all this ruckus. And so he comes running upstairs and he comes in the room and he says, boys, you know, what, what's going on here? And Frank said, well, Sam just took my model airplane and he threw it on the ground and he smashed it to pieces. And the father says, Sam, is this true? And Sam, who now has started to cry, says, yes, it's true. And the father says, Sam, why did you smash Frank's airplane to pieces? And Sam said, well, because I don't have one like it. And so the father says, well, Sam, it's, it's okay. I forgive you. Frank, I want you to forgive your brother, Sam. I want you to hug him. And I want you to tell him that you're sorry for, for hitting him. Okay, good. Now let's wash up and go downstairs for supper. Now, what's wrong with that story? You know, what's Frank supposed to do with, with that? How's he supposed to respond to his father? And what kind of person does Frank become growing up in a home like that? What happens to Sam? What kind of Sam, person does Sam become with no consequences? And what kind of father does he become for his children. Where is the justice? What would happen to the nation of Israel if God allowed the murderer to find safety and protection in the city of refuge? And what kind of burden would God be placing on his people if he just told them, oh, get over it? What happens to the family of the murdered man? What are they supposed to do? How are they supposed to act? What happens to the community? They begin to take sides. Some side with the murdered family. Oh, you poor family. Others say, you know what? I'm glad he killed that guy. He deserved to die. You know, the the implications are enormous. 
when there is no justice. Far beyond just the two men involved in this story. The nation is watching, the world is watching. Look in verse 20 of Deuteronomy 19. All part of the same section. Uh, The Lord says, the rest of the people will hear of this and, and be afraid And never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And so God wants the nation of Israel and the watching world to know that he is a God of justice. And that's what this eye for an eye is all about. It's about God's justice. It's not about maiming people. We've so misinterpreted it. It's about fair compensation. It's about not seeking a million dollars to cover a $75,000 doctor's bill. It's about the punishment fitting the crime and not going beyond that because God is a just God. Now, let's come back to us. What is your crime? What is your crime? Yours and mine. Romans 3.23 All have sinned And fall short of the glory of God. All of us in this room, all have sinned. All of us miss this mark of perfection that the glorious God sets for us. And what is the fair penalty for that crime? What's the fair penalty for that crime? Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. We sin, all of us. And the payment for that sin is death. Well, why death? Death because God is a holy and a just God. Death because God cannot dwell, will not dwell in the presence of sin. Well, what's our problem? Sin. And since God is life, only life, life is only found in God, he's not going to dwell in the presence of sin. We're sinners, so we can't can't access that life because of our sin. So what's the only option for us? What is it? It's death. Because God is not going to tell himself, oh, just get over it. Just let them in to your presence. Sin doesn't matter. Yes, sin does matter. A perfect and holy and glorious God cannot be a perfect and holy and glorious God and dwell in the presence of sin, or he would not be a just God. And would we really want to be in the presence of such a God? Do you think Frank even wanted to look at his father? Much less sit down and have dinner with him or listen to anything he had to say or watch how the father interacted with Sam? These cities of refuge teach us so much about the gospel and about Jesus and about God's justice. So you can forget everything else I've said this morning, but just listen to this part because I'm almost done. The gospel is the act of God's divine justice. The gospel is the act of God's divine justice. He can only be a just God if he requires payment for sin. Life for life. Just like we heard. Jesus' life for our life. And that's why the cross of Christ is so horrific. On it, Jesus was receiving the punishment that God requires for sin. But Jesus willingly, willingly went to the cross. Such is his love for us 
that he would not be prevented from paying the price for our sin so that you and I would never be turned away from the gate of the city of God or expelled from it. So please don't take Jesus for granted. And please don't understand the gospel as just getting off the hook. It isn't. It's about the justice of God being satisfied by Jesus. That's the gospel. His life for ours. So what do we do? You and I who know the Lord. How about this? I bow, I bow before the cross of Christ and I marvel at his love divine. God's perfect son was sacrificed to make me righteous in God's eyes. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Is that not amazing? Think of all the pardoned me's, the pardoned murderers, the pardoned liar, the pardoned thief, the pardoned abuser, the pardoned addict, the pardoned adulterer, the pardoned fornicator. Lots of me's will be in the city because they've been pardoned by God because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But make no mistake about it. And listen to this as well. God will not give shelter and refuge to those who are guilty. God is not going to give shelter and refuge to those who are guilty because he is a just God. And you are guilty. You are guilty if you are not in Christ. And if you haven't by faith accepted his grace and his divine substitution, his life for your life, you will find that the gates to the city of refuge, the gates to the kingdom of God are not open to you. I'm telling you. Because God tells us you will not be welcomed and you will not be received. The God of justice, he will be at the gate. And he will ask you, if you accepted his son's offer to take your place and to pay the price for your sin that you could not pay. And if you say, no, wasn't interested, didn't believe he could do it, thought it was a fairy tale, a myth, you'll be excluded from life forever. That's the way it is. But if you say, yeah, yeah, I have faith, in Christ. Then and only then will God open the gate and welcome you in and say, enter into my joy. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for your word. Lord, I love these cities of refuge and what you have taught me and and hopefully all of us through them about how much you love life 
and the extent to which you go to preserve life. Not only here on this earth, but eternally. Lord, to preserve our lives, you had to die on the cross. Because you're a just God and and sin must be paid for. We would never think of a plan like this. Lord, when we think about it, we would say it's certainly not fair to you, the sinless one. Lord Jesus, the only person who ever lived that, that would never deserve to die because you are perfect. Why would you come up with such a plan? We marvel, we wonder, we bow before the cross. We thank you for it. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would not take you for granted. That we would not abuse grace in such a way that we believe it's just, oh, getting off the hook. But that we would be mindful of what our, our pardon cost you. So Lord, thank you, Spirit. Thank you for the hearts in this room and which you've worked showing us our sin and our need for you, for your pardon. Thank you for those of us that you have welcomed into your city. Come, come. Lord, we look forward to the day that we'll be with you forever. But I pray this morning for those in this room, Lord, who may not have ever heard or ever understood the gospel and their need to embrace you in faith. They've never seen you perhaps as a just God and in your justice requiring payment for sin. But I pray in these moments that they would understand it, Lord, and if they've never done so, that they would confess that they're a sinner, they don't deserve to be in the city, they're as guilty as the murderer. Why should I run? Why should I flee and not pay the consequences for my guilt? Lord, I pray that they would see you as the one, the only one who can deal with their sin, the only one who can open the gate to eternal life to them. And so I pray that they would turn in faith to you. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Thank you for your grace. All of this is of your grace, that you don't require from us what we owe you. Jesus has done that for us, so we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.